the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Rob uh, Seacrest with Polaris Equity Fund. Welcome aboard, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So you're based down in California, but Polaris does um, investing right across the U.S. in real estate, but lately has had a lot of involvement in the cannabis industry as well. How did that, how did that evolve and come about? Sure. So we are actually a real estate lender, and mm -hmm. we're specifically a special type of real estate lender. We're a value add bridge lender. When we use the term value add, that means that we are doing the type of loan that has a pre-approved budget to go back in to improve the, that property, whether it's a rehab, fix and flip, ground up construction, tenant improvements, whatever it might be to add value to right. that real estate. So that's the type of lender we are. We've done more than 5,000 of those types of loans, over a billion dollars. And so those are our expertise. Um, we traditionally would get our investors double digit yields, uh, typically around 11, 12%. And over the last decade, those started to compress down from 11, 12% down to uh, the you know, six to six to 8% in there. Right. Um, but more importantly, what happened during that period of time is there was no change in the quality of the sponsor or the deal, but our competitors started to increase the leverage Mm -hmm. so we went from 60 to 65%, which is the industry average, to 70, 75, 80, right. and even 90% on purchases. And we've been around for a long time. Um, we've been, our CEO has been lending uh, nearly 30 years. And um, we've seen this show before. Mm -hmm. And when it gets like this, we just simply pull away. We don't need to originate a deal. We could sit idle for up to 10 years if we needed to. Um, and so we just backed away from it and we started reducing um, uh, originating transactions unless they fit our profi uh, profile. Right. And during the same time, our local congressman, Dana Rohrbacher, who's mm -hmm. a friend of ours, happened to pass the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment, a major amendment in the cannabis industry. Um, probably everybody's familiar with, but if you're not, it, it defunded the Department of Justice from any prosecution of a cannabis related business in a medically licensed state. That was significant uh, because that meant that if we were to take our expertise and apply them to this asset class, cannabis use properties, and lend mm -hmm. to owners of cannabis use properties, um, that we could build these facilities and improve these facilities on a brand new asset class that nobody was lending on or dedicated lender out there in the country. And so when that law passed in 2014, we realized that okay, we have a clear path through for making, doing lending, but now the tenants can't be prosecuted. So that gave us the confidence that we should go ahead and start analyzing this sector. And uh, over the next two years, we took a really deep dive, really got all of our ducks in a row, um, worked through title, escrow, lawyers, um, fund controls, uh, all the things that, that were necessary and disclosed that these would be cannabis use properties and made sure that we didn't lose any protective coverage that, we, that we, we require to originate these types of transactions. Once we got all those things lined up, we started originating transactions in 2016. And since that time, we've originated almost 200 million in just this sector alone across the nation. So that's kind of the story. No, that's 
That's really interesting. And I know, you know, you mentioned about other firms getting more and more leveraged and, you know, that's happened a lot in other, other places where people, you know, they, they over leverage the market crashes and everybody's caught short and boats and driveways are being, being pulled away in the middle of the night. And uh, (laughs) nobody likes to see that. Right. Um, It's not a win for anybody, but you know, one of the things that's come up repeatedly and, you know, continue to see it as so many of the cannabis firms started off, they raised a bunch of capital um, and some, they raised amazing amounts of capital in some points. They went out and bought their facility and they paid for everything. And then they run cash short. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a terrible position to be in because you shouldn't be in every industry and you shouldn't be a landlord or a landholder and tying up all your capital if you're not making it work to the business where people are investing. What, you know, with regards to that, you know, what are, what are some of the challenges you run into investing? And I, I use the term investing because you are, even though you're doing the bridge loans and the transaction that way, you're, you're putting your faith into the operators. So you're investing in their success. Sure. And what are some of those challenges compared to traditional lending? Sure. So you really hit on a key point that I discuss a lot when we speak on panels across the country. And so cannabis operators, that the cannabis business is one of the most complicated uh, businesses that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Because not only do you have the typical challenges of, of a regular business, accounting, cash flows, uh, you, know, um, you know, sales and all those things, but in this sector, you have compliance, mm-hmm. you have to you have agriculture, um, you have weather, um, you have things that, that don't necessarily uh, impact or, or affect other businesses as much. In addition to that, it's almost all brand new. In the past hundred years or 50 years or whatever you wanna call it, depending on what state or how you're looking at the, the analyzing the market, most cannabis um, uh, sale, most cannabis product was grown outdoors. The the the, the vast yes. scale of it, the the indoor market was was so minimal compared to the outdoor market that there was probably only and I'm just making stuff up, but probably the largest facilities back in the illegal days were you know thousands of feet, not hundreds of thousands of feet. They're just absolutely. It would, it would have been too much on somebody's radar. Yep, and so. The reason I mentioned this point is that when you've got a, a guy that's you know putting you know a thousand or two thousand square foot uh, up in their um, uh, their mom's be- basement or in some pop up uh, greenhouse somewhere, the scale was very small, and so the costs were relatively small, and the mistakes those guys were doing everything out of just cash flow as they, they were kind of learning as they grow. Yep, uh, and, and <laughs> literally. Um, and so when you, <laughs> no pun when, intended. <laughs> when, you, when you pivot though to corporations and big business coming in and now you have nobody that's ever built a million square foot facility, let alone hundred thousand square foot facilities, and they come out and they do it at once. The, the, the amount of capital that's required to, to the cap X that, uh, that is required to acquire that real estate, get it entitled, approved, and then built out without ever knowing if it's going to work are enormous. And this is what we saw happen in, in Canada almost every single time. And so 
it, our strategy was do small facilities, make sure they're working, make sure it's experienced operators that have already uh, done their their uh, their business plan out of out of their own equity, and now they're just expanding their operations. And so, we've this we've scaled up um, from you know five thousand square foot facilities, ten thousand square foot to up to three hundred thousand square foot facilities now. But we now know what it takes to do those. And so it was the opposite in the US market as it was in Canada, where they just went and did it. And they had no mm -hmm. idea if it would work. And that was just all lost to what they call goodwill uh, you know, on the balance sheet. Yep. Um, and basically, it's just lost money. It's, it's never coming back. Um, so no, it's not. You really touched on, on what the issue was, is that nobody had ever built that size of facility. And even if there is somebody that's done it, they're not going to tell the other guy how they did it. And so each buddy, each person has to go go through that challenge on themselves on their own, but yet they're trying to get the maximum impact in the market and reduce their cost of goods. But in reality, what they're doing is just wasting all their money. Uh -huh. And so that is, um, you know, the U.S. market is is a lot different. People have scaled up slowly, and now we're just seeing our first million square foot facilities, um, uh, glass house up in and and uh, in California and some other facilities. Yeah, and I. I know what you're referring to because I built over a half million square feet uh, <laughs> in Colombia, and uh, it, it has its own challenges. And when you're breaking, you know, breaking the first path through, there's all sorts of problems. But you know, I like what you. One thing you did say is, I think, and maybe that's a filter for anybody who's looking to work with you is, you like to invest and work with the people who have already built something and are looking to upscale, as opposed to. We're new to the market and we need to handle the following issues. That's yeah, it's non-starter. We we just can't we can't take that additional risk. It has to be somebody that's already got existing operations and existing um, you know uh, track record. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It makes a it makes a huge difference. And after a few years that we're into this now, there's a lot of people with good track record in terms of they've accomplished certain parts. So that's definitely worthwhile. We do have to take a short break. But we're going to be back in a moment uh, with uh, Rob Seacrest from Polaris uh, Equity Fund. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet take-anywhere treat. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak with Rob Seacrest. Rob, um, you know, just before the break, we were talking about, you know, one of the most important filters and factors for you in deciding who Polaris is going to be working with, which is experience and having been there already and gone through the first phases. Now, you know, as a lot of the operators were building before, they didn't have to worry about compliance. They just went and did things. But today with people, with the where the market is, and you know, and every state is different, but everybody's under the same pressures. There's a speed 
factor where people just, you know, they, they want to get going as quickly as possible and get the product on store shelves because you want to get to revenue. But compliance is something which gets so heavily overlooked in so many of the businesses and until it's too late or it's so much work to, to get that figured out. How do you approach that side of it when you're identifying the people in the firms to work with? Sure. So the first thing I want to distinguish, uh, two sides of compliance. So mm -hmm. traditionally, probably when you guys think about it, you're thinking about the cannabis operator, the business that is, that is generating the revenue and doing the actual growing um, and their compliance with the state regulations. <clears throat> yeah, there's compliance in a few factors. And I, I guess I should have clarified that. There's compliance in terms of it's an agricultural product for a pharma quality um, distribution. So there's the compliance of the product itself. There's compliance in terms of your reporting and governance because you may go public. And there's just internal operating um, structures. All of those are key. And any one of them can, when it breaks down, can bring a complete business failure. Gotcha. So are you asking for compliance from our side? Yes. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So um, what's ironic uh, we are very heavily regulated by multiple uh, agencies, state agencies and federal agencies. And our path that we chose was to um, stay in the lane of non-plant touching, meaning that we only lend to the owners of real estate. We do not lend directly to the tenants. So we are completely non-plant touching. So in, in essence, uh, for compliance and for reasons that, uh, that that typically would trip up a lot of things, we've got a clear path through there because we right. basically we're, we're disclosing that our tenant is cannabis use, and that does affect some things, but not necessarily compliance. But it does affect some standing in some mm -hmm. things that we might need to effectuate uh, in certain scenarios. For example, um, we were in a, um, a, a traditional uh, institutional bank, and because our website has a, a, a picture of a flower on it, um, we lost all of our banking. Um, yep. <laughs> which, which, and, and when you lose your banking, I'll just make a quick short story of it. They don't call you to tell you. They don't even send you a certified mail. It's just a, one of those bank letters that you get every day and you didn't, it was a miracle. We even realized that it was, you know, a, a letter to us, but you have to exit in 30 days and you can't talk to them anymore. They will not I've, take your- I've they, run across they, people at 24 hours. That was incredible. Yeah. So we had 30 days, but, but we also had 40 trust accounts and yep. tens and tens of millions of dollars. And That's we, gotta have be horrible. To main, we have to maintain custody of those accounts because they're not, it's not our money and proof to for compliance how where that money is going and so that uh you know that's one thing you have to challenge that's not a compliance thing but we had to get into an fdi insured cannabis friendly bank that does mm -hmm. uh you know we, we're two tier two slash three which is ancillary but our bank does tier one as well so those are some of the things um and you know there is no compliance difference for us from the aspects of what we're doing today. And in regards to, to going public, um, we were asked to go public and offered to go public on the NASDAQ earlier this year. And we are, we've are we decided that we, we carefully analyzed it and we decided that 
that is not the path for us. Right. Um, and the reason, just a quick expansion on that is that this asset does better in a real estate or uh, uh, economic downturn than other asset classes. And mm-hmm. we would hate to have a, a, an asset class that performs well in, in down markets and yet not be able to raise any capital because the volatility of the stock market. So we've decided to stay uh, private and mm-hmm. utilize that. And our investors are very happy with that because we have no volatility in our share price. Yeah. And I, mean, I know uh, a lot of people who are doing as a, an aside SPACs would sell it in the terms of, you know, cannabis is a, an industry with a lot of hair because there's a lot being figured out and unclear. And that's where a SPAC came in because it, it didn't care. And, um, and just to add to that, there was a clear path through with the NASDAQ um, uh, from compliance uh, because of our strategy of being non-plant touching. Right. Now, you know, the issues you've run into with banking and from a compliance perspective on that level, <clears throat> Those are the same issues the operators fall into as well. Um, do you look at that in terms of, you know, they become your tenant? Is that a value add you, you can help them with? We would never lend to a owner of a building mm-hmm. where the tenant did not have uh, banking, cannabis friendly banking established. We have seen 2,000 transactions. We've never seen one that didn't have banking already established. That would be a <clears throat> massive red flag to us. I would so hope so. <laughs> if they didn't have that established when they came to us, we're, we're, we're really doubting what their experience is in the industry. There's 695 banks, state banks and credit unions listed mm-hmm. on FinSets, which is down from the previous year, that are plant tier one plant touching uh, cannabis friendly banks for depositor relations across the nation. If they haven't figured that out, that is a massive, that would be a massive red flag. Absolutely. But there's some banks that are going to be better than others beyond just being able to open the account. Sure. I'm sure you must have insights for that. Yeah. So um, on that part, we are not in the business of coaching Mm -hmm. um, our borrowers, tenants. We can't get involved in that. Right. If somebody reached out to us um, that was our borrower um, or asked us if, the, if we had any experience with something, we may be willing to share what, who and what we, we know in certain circumstances. But generally, that we're the, just the lender. We don't really have an opportunity to drive things um, on, on where it's coming. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if somebody asked us, we, we may, but we try to stay out of that if, if it, it, it it's it's a, it's something that we'd have to kind of analyze what because once you start advising there's some exposure there is why there is I'm kind of, absolutely kind of like parsing my words here you don't need the liability side <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough you know but on that you know part of what you have to look at and you as you know in your role but and also keeping an eye out on behalf of whether you advise them or not your tenants, because anything that affects them affects you, is the trends in the federal policies. And, you know, today's July 15th, and yesterday there was a move in the Senate towards um, improving the status of legalization, and there's always the activity in the House. Where do you, you know, beyond what's happened, what do you really think is, is coming over the next six to 12 months in terms of federal policy changes? 
So um, when I speak with my co my peers and co co panelists uh, across the nation, I'm less um, bullish than my peers, and and I just kind of revert to one simple fact: when the Biden administration came in, they could have signaled to the entire industry in the country that they were open to cannabis by simply reinstating the coal memo. Right. It, it, it does not require an act of Congress. It would have signaled to everybody where they stand. They didn't. <laughs> that to me was the biggest tell uh, of all. Um, you know, there's some history with uh -huh. Biden's previous uh, drug policies and, and where he's at. So uh, my, my personal opinion is I think that if, uh, if a bill did get ratified between the House and the Senate, uh, and and was brought to Biden's desk, I think he would sign it. But I don't see a bill making it through the Senate. Um, and I don't see the uh, enough political capital um, remaining in this year before we move to the midterms to even get it on the calendar for the, it's the Senate is the one huh? you need. And it's certainly not gonna get 60 votes uh, to be filibuster proof. So I just don't see it happening. And on top of everything, as you saw from the bill from Schumer the other day, it's so broad that there's just no way that the uh, Republicans or even some of this, the Democrats are gonna sign on to that. Um, and so he specifically, our opinion is, and a lot of people's opinion is, is that he specifically did it that way to ensure his reelection. And I think that, that, that it's just politics. And people forget, how, people forget how messy politics are. It's really, uh -huh. it, it's almost secondary what the bill is or what the item is that they're working on. It's more about what it does for them and not necessarily their constituents. And they even hold things back to make sure they stay in power, but that's another conversation for another day. If, if I could prognosticate what I think would be the clearest path through is just target two things in, in, in each and an individual bill. 280E, get that, get that uh, uh -huh. to the IRS so you can write it off on your federal tax rate. Uh, that would get, most of the uh, MSOs are, either close or already operating at uh, EBITDA positive cash flows. And if you could change that, now you're, you've really moved the market there. Right. And the other thing I'd like to see is that <clears throat> most people don't realize that the, the vast majority of the buildup of cash in this sector in the legal market is actually at the dispensary. And the yep. reason that that buildup of cash is happening is because credit cards operate on a federal system. And so, if we could get the credit cards approved to be, um, uh, to be used for, for transactions, that would eliminate a big load of cash. Um, and so it, what happens is you start the cash at the dispensary, and then those guys are trying to get rid of that cash by paying everybody else in cash. Um, and so those, are, those two things I would like to see targeted. And I think, that, I think that those would be easy. And if there's one last point I could make is that the, 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 the politicians are focused on um, getting this passed, but there's two, two words I'm gonna use or two statements that are, are slightly different that people may not have realized. The political capital is behind um, uh, decriminalization, which yep. is for individuals. And that's where it, all the push is right now. And that's where they've got the political capital to push, push things through. But in reality, all the things that we all do, and I think the, the criminal uh, justice reform and all that's important, but in reality, you need legalization or you, you need the deconfliction from federal policy, and that's businesses. And so you've got two completely separate things. One is for people yep. and it's history and correcting what's wrong and trying to make it so that it doesn't happen in the future. And the other is for businesses. And so all the political capital is on decriminalization. And that's a totally different 
animal than focusing on what's legalization for the operations of businesses. Oh, absolutely. And I'd, I'd like to come back to a little bit of that in the last segment. We do have to take one more break. Okay. Um, but we'll be back with uh, Rob Seacrest from uh, Polaris Equity Fund in just a moment. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak. And Rob, just before the break, um, you know, we're talking about the, the governments and the paths and everything else and, and there's a lot of issues that exist but you know many of us are you know I've been involved in the industry for a while and I'm looking at different areas that perplex me and the ones that perplex me are the ones where the solutions are to be found that actually impact a lot of the operators what what are you most interested in learning about and what perplexes you about the way this is industry is operating that separate from the regulatory framework, sits out and goes, well, why is that? Why, this needs to normalize. Hmm. Gosh, I've been asked a lot of questions, and that one I have never been asked. I, <laughs> um, you have, I wish I could come up with something really quick and, and, and a witty answer uh, for you, but we're more focused uh, from a lending perspective right. on collateral and underwriting and under, we, are, we do understand the cannabis business and we do understand how the operators are working probably more than, than any other lender in the, in the country. Um, but I haven't thought about it from an operator standpoint to answer your question because that's not the lane I'm in. We're, we're thinking about it from lending perspective and how we can broadly help as many operators as possible. Right. So I, 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 I'm gonna have to punt on that one. I haven't thought about it and um, I can't even come up with something really quick witted off the top of my head. Um, gosh, it, may, it, may, it might come back to me if we could move on no, to the next one. I, I don't have a response for you on that one. That's fine. I, I know that, uh, you know, I often look at things I'm not involved in and I scratch my head about and go, why is this not the same as every other industry? Why is it different? And it's, you know, it's always interesting. But, you know, before we do run out of time, for people who are, you know, looking at going, taking that next step, be it to rebuild their facility or to expand and grow, you know, obviously the qualifier is you want somebody who's been there and has already gone through the first phases. How do they connect with you? 
who what should they approach how should they approach you yeah well because of the volume of transactions we see a day we can't even answer the phone anymore um with regard to transactional so they have to email us their loan request and they have to already have identified their property um and who would their tenant would be in their budget and provide that to us before we can even talk to them mm -hmm. um and so it starts off with an email to info at polorisequitygroup.com mm -hmm. um, and you can look that up on our website uh how to, with the spelling of that but that's how the process has started but what i would like to say to all of these cannabis operators um at some point um most of them would start off leasing a space and get their, you know, their skills up and, and, and once they feel comfortable and their business is running, the next step for them is to either buy that facility or to expand into a facility um, or another purchase a facility and buy it out. And so what you're looking for is a few things. One is you have to find a lender that successfully closed a transaction before. Right. I can't tell you how many people come to us that have PT, PT, PTSD from, <laughs> from signing term sheets, putting up uh, non-refundable deposits, even going to loan docs multiple times. And by the time they get to us, they've already burned through all this tens of thousands of dollars. They've already uh, gone through the earnest money deposit. They've bought additional extensions. And now they're, they're if they don't close within like 24 hours, they're now going to lose their earnest money deposit and the property and there's backup offers. Yeah. And that's a really bad spot to it's be a horrible in. It's position. Not, it's not our problem that, that that they chose to go with some somebody that's never been able to close a transaction before. So it doesn't matter what the pricing is on your loan. If it's not a lender that can that can pr provide proof that they've closed on a transaction before, you, you really are taking uh, you, you better take that into account of how you're how you're working through that transaction. Absolutely. So that's, the first, that's the first step. But there's a second step that's just as important. If you're building the facility and doing value add to it, um, you better understand value add construction loans. You better mm -hmm. understand is this lender is the reason I'm getting um, LIBOR plus 450, which is an institutional loan, is the reason I'm getting that um, it, because they they can they only process draws once a month. And if so, do I have the cash flow in my balance sheet to advance a million or two million dollars a month before I get reimbursed? And is that going to slow me down? Or right. do I need a lender that can reimburse unlimited amount of draws in one to three days? And so that actually is the biggest delta. What we've learned in 5,000 loans is that the cash flow getting back out to the contractors expedites getting that facility built. We mm -hmm. typically process between 50 and 100 draws per transaction. And those our borrowers' tenants are typically doing one to $5 million a month. So right. for every day that we're saving them in the amount of time that it takes to complete that facility so it can start generating income is thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars a day. And so that opportunity revenue is really what you should be looking at when you're pricing and factoring a loan. And that's why people come to us because we're the fastest in closing, analyzing and expediting the draw process as efficiently as possible. And there's one little nuance to it as well. Any construction project, by the first draw that you're processing, the, the budget's already changed. And you better yeah. have a lender that knows how to quickly navigate that and continue the cash flow going, but yet deal with those, those line items that need to be adjusted. A bank stops the whole thing, waits for somebody to come in and look at it and reprocess it, and another week is gone. You're never going to get that facility built. You just basically, you got a loan, but you're advancing all the money and you're going to be out of money. Yep. And, you know, before we have to leave, I mean, one thing we didn't touch upon is your investors. 
because you get a lot of people who invest with Polaris to get involved in the industry from what I understand. And, you know, for people who are looking to, you know, are interested in the cannabis space and interested in space, but see the wild fluctuations in the stock market, which I know I live through, um, getting involved through a company like Polaris or others who place on their behalf, but also give a, you know, there's more, there's more of a, not a guarantee, but there's more certainty around some form of return along the way. It's, it's a way to participate that's a bit different. And it also probably gives them a lot of insights into the activity across the space as a whole. Do you, do you give a lot of feedback to your investors around what's going on? We do. Um, we are giving our feedback more uh, as it relates to our portfolio. Absolutely. And, and uh, the performance of our fund. Mm -hmm. and where we're headed and we do that through uh, quarterly updates and things like that and we issue we make monthly disbursements that have that have that you know they're getting that that monthly check every month as well mm -hmm. um but uh the analysis we don't we don't get into the if somebody wants to understand what's happening in the cannabis industry from an operator standpoint we are no you get that. a macro view yeah right? we, we we get those questions and i answer them on a case-by-case -case basis if somebody mm -hmm. has the biggest question is about how is this going to how is the uh political ref, uh bills that are coming through congress going to affect us that's the that's the largest one and we that we get from most investors um, mm -hmm. and we address that one um but uh we don't get into the nuances of any specific cannabis business. Um, you know, I'm happy to answer that if somebody did, but usually we have such a broad portfolio of transactions that we don't get into any, we don't get specific with no, anyone. Of course, no, wouldn't expect you to. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. We've run out of time. Um, once again, for anybody looking to contact uh, Polaris, the best is to go through the website and or email uh, info at and uh, you know, there's an amazing amount of activity, and I think uh, the work you're doing is really uh, extremely interesting in the space. So, thank, thank you. you for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. Thanks for having me, and uh, look forward to coming back when we have some big announcements next month. All right, I look forward to seeing those. <laughs> Bye. Thanks everybody for listening. Have yeah. a wonderful day. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.